Hey everyone, it's Robin from the Shopstall Podcast. Unfortunately, I had a bit of trouble with my audio this week, so I'm not going to be on the show, but Joey and Brian did a fantastic job of keeping it going, so big thanks to them. This is also the first episode this season where we have a guest for you, so I want to say a very big welcome to Julian McCartney. How are you this evening? I'm well, thanks Robin. Thank you for having me. So for the people out there who don't know who you are, could you just give us an idea of what you do and maybe we'll get into the history of how you got to this point? Well, I, I'm a furniture maker by trade. Um, I have a business called Glencross Furniture. I'm based in Melbourne in a suburb called Thomastown. That's where my workshop is and it's in the, the northeast um, of Melbourne, probably f- you know 15 to 20 k's out of the city. Um, I make uh, bespoke fine furniture um, and work with clients to uh, create unique items that tell a story. (laughs) That's uh, the general sort of pitch, but um, yeah, yeah, sorry. I was going to say, so can you tell us a little bit maybe how long you've been running the business uh, as it is now? Yep. And then how did you stumble your way to get to starting the said business? Um, sorry, I was just distracted by the miss. We've lost Robin, I think. <laughs> He's <laughs> looking. Yeah, um, how did I get started? Um, well, I uh, back in 2006, I, I did an apprenticeship in... Um, in, you know, in oh, hmm, a fun, I haven't done this for a while actually, so I'll sort of get there. Um, I'd been doing a few things up until sort of 2006. As you know, I'd travelled a bit. I'd been in and out of some some university courses, and I decided to sort of change the tack as to where I wanted to go with things. And after I'd been overseas for a couple of years and and worked with some craftspeople in um, Canada and things like that, um, I, I came home and I just was trying to figure out what can I do where I can work with my hands, I can use creative outlets and feel like I've created something from start to finish, you know, and sort of be part of the, the in-between, the, the beginning, the in-between and the end sort of thing. And, um, and I realised that sort of furniture as part of people's lives was an area um, that I'd really like to get into. And I had a particular interest in sort of the historical side of it, the tra- tradition of furniture and, and the craft and everything. So I found a, a pre-apprenticeship uh, at RMIT in, in Melbourne CBD. And uh, and I did that and after a few months, one of my tutors there sort of realised that, you know, at that stage I was mid-20s and um, they could see I was a bit keener than some of the younger people there. So he put me forward for an apprenticeship and I, I finished that a little bit early and, and went into the antique side of the trade. So... Um, my early sort of learnings and everything as an apprentice was antique restoration and reproduction. Um, so creating uh, antique style pieces to make them look like they're hundreds of years old and all tra- traditional joinery and all that sort of stuff. So that was an area that I really wanted to get into and sort of get into the guts of taking stuff apart and understanding how it's made and then hopefully apply that to, you know, becoming a better maker um did you get did you get to work with um like ye oldy mahogany and stuff or when yep. you say when when you say it was made to look like it was old 
was it just built in the yeldy fashion or did you actually kind of for want of better term like distress it yeah there was yeah uh, the, and that's can be a can of worms topic when it comes to the the idea of distressing timbers and being convincing in that sort of field so um yeah we worked with mahoganies um you know all the premium cabinet timbers from you get from america all your oaks and walnuts and cherries and things like that um and and some european timbers and some things that we um milled ourselves from locally grown trees and then and then you know like we have a lot of european oaks and sycamores and elms and things in in melbourne so sometimes you get your hands on stuff like that um so it was um it was a matter of taking the timbers that would have been used in those types of things like provincial furniture from france and the uk and all that sort of stuff using timbers that that were traditional to that sort of age of furniture and then yeah making it with or your mortise and tenon dovetail stuff um and then going through the aging process so you kind of do a a manipulated aging process on timbers and uh that could involve staining or oxidizing timber um and then distressing it like belting it around a bit but um yeah yeah so it was interesting though i'd like to think i was fortunate in that i worked with people early on that did it the right way not the wrong way but you know everyone did it differently some mm. people would distress furniture just just hit it everywhere and say okay that looks like it's old um <laughs> we were very sort of scientific like my boss is very particular about if you're going to distress something it's got to be distressed where it would be normally distressed yeah so if it was a dresser which might be like a sideboard looking thing that had sort of a few drawers across the front and turned legs or whatever you'd imagine if someone had fingernails around where the draw pools were going to be and over a hundred years what would happen to the the area around that and when you eventually put brass handles on like how does the dirt gather around the handles and and then everything was sort of french polished like so it's mostly shellac finished and wax and stuff like that so, so would, he, would he get you to put some false nails on and just like scratch away at it is that the <laughs> yeah <laughs> that was, oh man you should have seen that there was like having a set of torture tools or something like that in in the workshop it was all like you know chains attached to sticks and even really? but bags of old keys and stuff like that like proper skeleton key type things and so as much as possible like you're sort of trying to be innovative with what you use for that but a lot of the time you try and use legitimate stuff like you know bits of nail and things like that that were actually from cabinets that have been destroyed and pulled apart and left you know my old boss had jars of all kinds of you know um original parts and things and um so that that was that was a very influential time um being able to pull that sort of stuff apart um we were based in hawksburn village in which is sort of Turak in melbourne it's quite an affluent area um good clientele for that kind of work a lot of people have big mansions and things like that with a mixture of antique furniture and modern things and whatever so um it was sort of uh, to have a sh- like my we had a shop front and then a small workshop at the back of it kind of in a you know in hawksburn village in, uh was kind of a busy little you know cosmopolitan sort of area so 
you bring clients in and they'd love to smell like the, the, the wax and see what was going on out the back and you, you're hand planing things and chiseling things and whatever. And yeah. it was, a, it was almost like, you know, going to a, a country workshop in, in the UK somewhere probably. But, um, so, so, yeah. So how did you, how did you break away, so to speak, and mm. decide that you're going <laughs> to, um, undercut your boss? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, um, <laughs> I, I guess there was a point where, you know, I finished my apprenticeship and I hung around for a little bit, but it was physically a small space, but also just the challenge with being in the industry from the ground up is that from a career point of view, it's very hard to, you don't just jump, like if I could compare it to other trades, say like a licensed trade, plumbing and electrical or whatever, you have sort of stages where your income increases significantly. Yeah. Uh, that's not the case as a cabinet maker, um, unless you're in a very high volume space. So some of the kids that I went to trade school with worked in family businesses doing kitchens and things like that, um, maybe shop fitting. And in those volume environments, there's a potential for your, your career stuff to jump. But anyway, so... I sort of wanted to move out from that and just get a bit more experience in more modern business in the furniture field, like in Melbourne. Like who's successful in um, in the furniture field in Melbourne? And I ended up going to um, – well, I went overseas for a little bit again, just had a break, and then I came back and I'm like, all right, who's out there? And I found Tate Furniture who um, – you guys might be familiar with Brian. You're probably familiar with yeah, through architecture and stuff. Um, they've been uh, uh, they they mostly do sort of outdoor furniture, mostly steel, but they do a lot of aluminium work and stuff now, and powder coated stuff. It's nice designer furniture for outdoor use, and they'd been operating in Melbourne for about twenty years by the time I went and worked for them. And um, I just wanted to see from the inside how how you do modern furniture and and survive as a business and. Um, so I got to learn some welding. I'd done a bit of welding when I worked for Robert Brown was who I used to work for, um, in the antique field. And we used to do everything, you know, strip machines, all the, whatever you can imagine and learned how to weld and stuff. But I did that more on a modern sort of way with Tate, got to meet different types <clears throat> of clients, did some delivery, did some assembly. And then, um, I've seen you know, the, the welding jigs at Tate are amazing. Yeah, yeah, Absolutely. they were very, they were very good at adopting modern techniques, like getting laser cut parts so they could make jigs very accurately and stuff. Whereas, as all you guys know, when you're banging together jigs, sometimes they can be so rudimentary and and brutal in what they end up being, just to get like one job done. But they always sort of invested in because they did runs of stuff. You're doing a lot of chairs for a university or something like that. You want the jigs to be bang on. It's super precise yep. work and, and their quality was really good. So um, there was a lot of stuff to pick up in that environment. And then um, at the same time, this, so this is about uh, late 2012, early 2013. And um, we'd moved to Fitzroy, which is inner city Melbourne. My wife and I had moved there and... Uh, I decided to try and find a workshop space to try and start doing some of my own stuff because our previous place, um, I'd had it, we'd been doing, st like I'd worked under a carport in, in, in spare time and just used little bits and pieces of timber and stuff to make stuff for markets and everything. 
and um, and eventually got a shared workshop space um, in Fitz or oh, Collingwood, technically. And um, I was sharing with another maker, uh, Tara Wilcox from Wilcox uh, Red Fox and Wilcox, who um, has a, a furniture business in Melbourne. And um, yeah, just sort of start to network around the area, like get to know. I had a lot of interest in people who were working in food and hospitality and stuff. So a lot of the earlier networking and work that I did was um, through the people that I met at local restaurants and cafes and, um, you know, and in the meantime, you're you're trying to get commissions through people you know and uh, get on the social media thing was sort of happening. (laughs) Instagram was sort of starting to blow up a bit. So you're trying to like get a presence on Instagram and, um, yeah, and I think I just wanted to develop myself as, um, like take the skills that I had and just use them in different ways. So Hmm. more contemporary stuff and still do a bit of restoration things here and there, but I think I've always wanted to, and I still do today, taking what I knew from a traditional point of view and that fine furniture knowledge and just tried to apply it to the things that you don't necessarily expect, like you don't have to necessarily see all of that sort of stuff happening, but it is always happening. I don't know if that makes sense. Like, yes. Um, <laughs> I came to I came from a similar approach, I think. Uh, I, certainly that was my intention mm. to combine traditional type mentality to more um, yeah, modern design. Um, <clears throat> I probably I think I've let that slip a lot just because when you're asked to make some things there's just no room for traditional yeah um, you just have to kind of throw all of that old stuff out the window because what the client wants just doesn't fit mm. but um, and I find that happens more and more actually especially now where I'm doing more cabinets there's a lot of just yeah no you can't build that that way so we're just going to use plywood <laughs> sure yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that was one of the the biggest challenges because it was a real shift in going from doing things the way that I had done and working for someone else. Like uh, when you first start doing stuff for yourself, you get this kind of false confidence or even before that, like still working for someone else, you kind of, there's little stages you go through of thinking, oh, I could totally build like a three meter tall break front cabinet with (laughs) 16 drawers and six sets of glass windows or whatever and because you kind of do one under the tutelage of someone and in their workshop with all the gear and then you get into a like you're trying to start a business you've got bugger all good tools like there's my hand tools and stuff but I didn't have any big power tools really like just a few like a lathe and a little table saw and stuff but it was pretty dodgy um didn't have a thicknesser for a while and and a decent buzzer and um, you just, yeah, you've got to be a little bit, um, innovative in that, at, at that point. And yeah. And then, so when it comes to also trying to adapt to like more modern styles of furniture, you, like you said, you, you start working with maybe plywood or joining things in a different way to create a modern form. And you That's do right. have to like relearn the trade in a lot of ways, um, mm. or, or just continue to learn the trade, which is something I think you always do anyway but um it's interesting what you said before when you someone where you say yeah i can make that giant three meter tall your break front break 
break front desk or whatever. But like you say, you're under, there's a mentor there with you. Mm. And because they're there as like a backstop, you mentally you don't actually run through every detail about how, how you're going to do it. It's, it's not all in your mind. It's, it's a combination of you and your mentor. And so when, when it's finally just you looking at this three meter wide hole in the wall, that should be a desk <laughs> and you go, Oh, how do we, how do you actually do the start part where I never did that before? You know, like the, mm. the, suddenly it's all on you and there's a, and it's all risk. Cause then you go, Oh shit. Someone just gave me 20 grand to build this thing. Mm. And, uh, can I actually pull it off? Like you start really doubting yourself at that point. Absolutely. Um, yeah, planning, I guess, has a lot to do with that and trying to, with that and, and trying to figure out what are your processes. But um, also when every job is custom and um, technically, even if it's a really utilitarian, because I do, I've got stuff that I do that is, I guess more of a unique design and then there's the stuff that is very utilitarian sort of stuff and regardless of whatever those things those things are you're still designing it in some way from the ground up you've got to source all the materials and all that sort of stuff um every single time that you do that there's not necessarily a fixed process for every piece that you make unless you start doing products or whatever so you realize pretty quickly like you know where your time's going and whether you're pricing things properly or whatever and, <laughs> pricing um, is a fun one <laughs> yeah i've i've heard i've i've listened to you, you, your podcast for a while and i've i've heard the conversations and there's been plenty of head nodding at my end um when i've heard some of your stories joey <laughs> and uh and and brian as well i've had a few chats with brian over the years um but um yeah it, it never gets old um it's uh it comes part and parcel and i was saying to brian the other day actually just that there's there's this sadistic oh, i don't know if it's masochist sadistic or whatever there's, <laughs> there's this thing about you sort of you love the variation in what you do but then you're you're constantly in pain because you're like, why do i keep doing this shouldn't i just like design three pieces and just yeah. start flogging those for the rest of my life but um uh i think there's like i know for me i really enjoy interacting with the client and especially the brainstorming stage and 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 hopefully being somewhat collaborative with them um i like seeing people get excited when you sort of solve a problem for them and um that's what drives a lot of the stuff that i make um I really want it to be quite personal to somebody. So, you know, it's not, you might make a piece that is really just for that person. It's not necessarily going to be for the next person. Yeah. But there's often details that you can take. Yeah. Things that you learn through the process of making that that odd piece for one person that will then inform further designs. Oh, totally, and it's yeah. uh, more and more, and and I think I've become more aware of it. I I find myself going to certain details that have become more consistent, and saying, "Hey, what about if we put this in here?" Or, you know, how we were talking about this thing. Um, here's actually a couple of examples of how that could work, and um, that actually is a really helpful way to. It takes a bit of weight off your shoulders in the process, I think, too, because. 
you've got that existing confidence of having done something before and, and knowing how it's worked in a design or whatever. Um, yeah, knowing and, that you have uh, you know A, B, and C up your sleeve, and when the client asks for F, you can go, "Hey, we've done this before, and I know this works." You're asking for something that's a little bit outside the scope of what I know works. Yeah. So, you know, here's your choice. We can go and take a little bit of risk and do it the way you want, mm. um, or we can do it this other way where I know it's going to work. Um, and I usually say, "I want to take the risk." If you're if you're willing, I'm willing, but um, you know, it could be all, you know, bad news next week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, there's definitely times when you go, oh, we could totally do this. Like, you don't want to be that tradesperson or whatever that goes, yeah, yeah, no, nah, it'll be fine. Don't worry, I've done this a million times. Because I've, I've heard that from <laughs> people before and, and I know, I'm, like, when they're saying it, I'm like, this isn't going to work. But you find yourself sometimes doing that. You're like, yeah, no, nah, it'll be fine. And then... You go and start drawing something up, and you're like, "Oh, this wood is gonna not gonna be able to move a certain way, or yeah. um, or we might just lose the detail because it's going to be hidden behind something, or what? I don't know. You look, you, yeah, you you do learn to try and choose your words carefully, but sometimes you just get excited in the moment. <laughs> yeah, that can be when problems arise. Huh? You spit something out, and you're like, ah. Oh. I shouldn't have said that. Because <laughs> now I'm, <laughs> I'm down the track, you know. Ah, uh, totally. You're pretty much only Aussie timbers, aren't you, Julian? No. No? I, I do... It, depending on what it is, like, I, I lean towards a lot of Aussie timbers. Like, if you were going to pick the top two Aussie timbers that I use, they tend to be, like, either Blackwood, which could be from Tassie or... Um, I've got a guy that, um, if you know Liam Ratton from, from down in, um, uh, he's near Dalesford and they slab, um, he works sort of alongside Pete Curley a bit. Yeah, um, Pete Curley. So yeah. they, yeah, they source uh, a bit of timber down the Otways and often come back with these beautiful blackwoods. So I get some slabs off him sometimes, but, uh, but so I love blackwood. It's always been one of my favorite timbers and, um, and that look that goes really nicely with Tassie oak. So those sort of lighter coloured mountain ash kind of eucalypts that we have. Um, uh, I've always had some. I've been drawn to recycled timber in some way forever because early on I could get my hands on it pretty cheap. Yeah. Like I'd either find it or a carpenter buddy would say, "Hey, do you want this trailer load?" And I'd be like, "Yeah." Um, <sighs> I still use it if it's appropriate, but it's not super common in, in my work. But, yeah, if the right person comes along, for sure. I collect it. I've still got racks of it, but uh, <laughs> it uh, takes up a lot of space. Um, it's, a, if it's, a, it's annoying to have... I've got a, a small collection of recycled timber um, only because it was kind of just forced on me. But because it's great timber, there's nothing wrong with it apart from it's got holes all through it. Mm. And trying to find a piece where that actually is going to suit and really complement the piece is mm. very difficult. Even if somebody says, I don't mind the holes all over it. Yeah. Kind of like, it's kind of going to look a bit crap. <laughs> it, 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 it can, Yeah, look, it depends, I guess. Usually if somebody wants recycled timber, especially from, you know, Australian homes, especially a lot of the Melbourne homes um, have 
were traditionally built with hardwood frames. So, and it's all sort of like a mixed bag of um, eucalypt varieties. So they're sort of, you know, eucalyptus are notorious for having these crossbred um, species. And so all this sort of your black butts and stringy barks and messmates or whatever people have called them from the mills over the years, you know, they often get sort of mixed up and we have these incredibly dense timbers that come out of houses and um, a lot of them with gum pockets and things like that. But um, apart from that, yeah, they've got nail holes. And if people want recycled timber, they usually are aware that there's going to be these characteristics. Yeah. But not everyone is aware of the work that goes into processing those materials. Mm. So, um, like... Uh, how would you approach that with a client? I mean, because I get that a lot and I yep. still don't really know how to explain to someone that it's, it's way cheaper to buy new timber which is more expensive yeah than to try and pick through a stack of nail nail ridden timber well there's a couple of ways one when i used to not process the material myself which would require me to sort of denail things remachine it all that sort of stuff i would use um probably one of our favorite um suppliers um brian knows very well urban salvage and you've spoken to andy manure before and um they they have a they've always processed recycled timbers really well so they sell Mm. dressed all round timbers and that just takes an you know it's more expensive but it takes processes out of processing the the material so you can sort of go in there and maybe just sort of remachine the edges or whatever before you join them and stuff but um They've always machined stuff beautifully as well. So from a recycled material point of view, that can help. But it still costs a lot. Mm-hmm. And if I do it myself, like, I don't know. Look, the, the main problem is usually when someone comes to you and goes, oh, can you just make it out of recycled timber because I don't want to spend that much or something. And you're like, well, <laughs> yeah. it's going to cost you more. And if they get past the point of you saying, this is roughly how much something like this will cost, and they're like, okay, all right, so what are our other options? And one of the the handy ones I've used is um, using a wormy chestnut, um, which is like a stringy bark kind of variety that has a lot of pinhole in it. Um, Would you ever get it in New Zealand, Joy? You ever see Wormy Chestnut? No, I've never seen it. I've only seen it on yeah Aussie makers. Mm. I had I, I saw it at a I think I saw it at that wood uh, and what's it called? A at, at the Mulaney Wood yeah. Show. Yeah. Okay. I think it's right there. Yeah. Look, it it's pretty much just often very similar tones to sort of Tassie oak, that sort of biscuity brown, that kind of stuff, uh, just with a bit more character, and it does often look like recycled timber. Thanks to the pinholes and, and the thin gum right. vein and stuff like that. So I would often suggest that because rough sawn, I could get that at a more reasonable price. But I still have to process it and make, you know, as you've probably discussed before, like there is the raw material aspect of the jobs, but the reality is a lot of the time that the money's going into the labour and the expertise. Um, unless you're using like really exotic expensive stuff or you know going into sort of the premium cabinet timbers like walnut and stuff which is 10,000 plus a cubic meter um 
or rare mahoganies and things like that or whatever, you know. But um, yeah. So there's yeah, there's always a bit of that. It's not just about the material costs, and I think some people just go automatically to that. And you're like, oh, by the way, this is how much I value my time as well, and that's going to go <laughs> yeah. on top of all that sort of. That so, is an interesting. Uh, <clears throat> that's an interesting point when you say to somebody, you look, I can make you your dining table out of oak just like you wanted. Mm. It's going to cost this much. And they say, oh, that's great, but, you know, it's a little bit over budget. How much if we make it out of pine, usually they'll say. Mm. And I'm like, well, you know, okay, there is a cost difference between oak and pine, but do you, know, do you want to know how much the labor aspect of the job is? It's like, you know, 75%, especially in the dining table. There's bugger all timber in it. Yeah. It's just, you know, it's labor. <coughs> I get asked that a lot as well, like with clients, they'll come in, they'll ask what timbers you work with, you'll show them a variety of samples and they'll be like, oh, what's what's the price difference between doing it in Blackbutt versus doing it in Vic Ash? And I'm like, well, across the whole piece, you know, you're probably talking about $400 on an $8,000 piece. Mm. Yeah. And they're like, oh, right, okay. And they get really hung up on the idea of cutting the material. Mm. Um, it's going to save them money, but in reality it's not. It's either got to be simplifying the design or scaling the whole piece down. It'd be interesting if they ever said mm. to you, oh, could you just, like, do a shit job? <laughs> yeah. I just won't sand the inside of it. The outside will look yeah. great. Don't sand the bottom of the yeah. table. That'd be fine. <laughs> oh, totally. It, the other thing is that um, it's not even just about material change a lot of the time, too, because you might change to pine and, and say, for instance, the pine costs less and it weighs a bit less, too, so maybe it's not as laborious to move. But the cost to say, what if there's a stain involved, right? <laughs> and staining pine takes a different process to staining like Vic Ash. It takes the stain differently and you prepare it a bit differently. So then you're adding the cost somewhere else. And yeah, also pines say more likely to get dinted or whatever. So what's a contingency? Like if I'm dinting it and ironing the bloody surface constantly to try and <laughs> raise the dint or something... Yeah. Like, have I allowed for that? Like, so they, I think those conversations with clients, there's, it's a constant learning process, but you definitely refine over time how much, and it's different from person to person, but how much do I tell them about the really finer details of something and how much yeah. do I say it in a way that gives them confidence in, especially if you're going ahead with the project, gives them the confidence in what you're doing. But then the person that you've kind of got to say, look, you're just, we just probably aren't going to work together. Like, how do you say that? Because I don't like to, I try to give everyone the courtesy, you know, an equal courtesy, unless they're being mm. rude or something. But um, so you sort of have to figure out some round terminology. Yeah, you've got to round the corners off on the sort of, okay, see you later kind of thing. And um, But that ha that's all part of it. I, you know, you, there's there's lots of, great advice out there about how you need to get better at saying no and that can bring more yeses to you or something and, <laughs> uh, but it does it does work a bit here do and you there. not find usually yeah. the best way to get rid of those people is just to add a zero onto the price <laughs> yeah yeah just just for shits and giggles and then worst <laughs> case they say yes and you're like oh well now this job's yeah. profitable yeah. yeah well yeah that's it's funny actually i um I did a bit of uh, work later last year with a, a business coach and we just sort of had a, a meeting every couple of weeks and um, and 
I, I was, it was really useful because I hadn't, I'd tried this once a few years ago and, and hadn't really gelled with somebody else and, and then um, had been talking with someone recently and, and I sort of asked her if she would help with some, some coaching sort of stuff and if anything it was just really great to, like a, a job came up like that Brian where I was like, I, I really want to do this, it was coming up to Christmas but I'm like my schedule is pretty, pretty hectic and for, the, for me to do this it has to be worth my while. And she's like, well, why don't you just increase your, what you're going to quote it for, you know, and, and probably bring it up to where it should be anyway. But um, it was sort of due time for that. And so I kind of put out a higher number and they came back and said, yeah, let's do it. And I felt way better about it straight away. Yeah, you feel motivated. Yeah, totally. And, and it had to happen pretty quickly. So I was just like, okay, this is happening. Bang, let's go do it. And, you know, I'm, I'm a bit of a sporadic worker anyway. And... Um, and it was also a job doing some products that uh, it was a corporate um, job where I was doing these serving boards that I've done for years. Since oh, I, I remember started. seeing those on your yeah. On you your probably Instagram saw the yeah. They had painted handles and some like uh, uh, laser work and stuff like that. And um, so there's a bit involved, but I know the process quite well. Yeah. And so knowing that I'd quoted properly to cover the hecticness of it and, and the size of it, um, I felt way better about it rather than just tearing my hair out. And I left that to the other jobs that I'd already quoted and was trying to finish at that time. But, um, but yeah, it's amazing how those... Look, at the end of the day, it's, it's business and, and how, uh, how much the costings and the re- client relationships affect you in the workshop. Uh, yeah, it's just one big sort of... And how many how many kind of jobs are you juggling at, at, at any given time to make to actually make uh, you know the, your work work for you? Because uh, mm. I know mm. that I can't just go on one job at a time; it just doesn't work money wise. I've got to have at least two things happening. Yeah. Um, look, it's always a, I think a, it's a changing thing that what the capacity looks like, but usually when it's sort of ticking along nicely there's one or two for me uh, that are like medium to largest jobs um and then or like I'll, I'll say a couple of premium jobs and then usually a couple of little things like mm. um little in betweeny jobs that might be sub thousand dollar type jobs you know yeah. um and mm. It could be a, a small item. It could be an improvement on something. It might be a repair. It could be anything like that. Um, you still do a bit of, of restoration work, don't you? I saw there was a um, was it a Featherston chair or something that you were restoring, or what was no, it? I reckon if I had, uh, I used to have a, set, a a small set of Mitzi Featherston chairs, but they were kind of like a. Um, a very run of the mill. If I had a Featherstone, I'd probably keep it for myself. <laughs> Did I not see it on uh, your on your Instagram last week that you were restoring a chair? I thought it was a Featherstone. Must I must have got that wrong. Last week, I'm not sure. I've definitely I'm, I'm modifying and sort of restoring a dining table at the moment. So it's a good example of uh, you know families had a table in the uh, you know in the house for 20 years or so. Someone else made it. That person doesn't make furniture anymore. Um, can I cut it down to a slightly smaller table because they're downsized a bit um, and refinish it and 
da, da, da. and it ends up being sort of a similar amount of time to making a new table. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm working with pretty much a hundred percent of the materials that are already there. So, right. you know, th- this table has narrow breadboard ends, and I've because I'm cutting the table down, I've cut those breadboard ends off. But the person who made it before did it in a really weird way. <laughs> so I've had to kind of like redo those and the table surface is all a bit funny and anyway like I quite like those types of jobs but they can sort of drag out a bit and um they take Very up difficult s- space to those so things. It is a bit, yeah. I um, always always kind of recoil when somebody says, "Can you just quickly cut the end of the <laughs> table off?" Yeah. And I'm like, "Uh not really that easy especially you know, some tables are just built so strangely that you, as soon as you put a saw to it the thing just falls to bits it's, it, it's very it's so so much variety well, it's and, like uh, renovating a house you know when you <laughs> when you take a wall down and you're like oh i didn't realize that it had some like it was partly supporting this structure yeah. that really shouldn't be the way it is and um yeah, so they they can be challenging those sorts of things, but it's also I, I get drawn into those jobs too because I I love the sentiment behind it and mm-hmm. and that that thing has a part a special part in their life. So, but um, yeah, it can be tricky if somebody comes to you and and they've bought a chair at a flea market or something and they spent twenty dollars on it and they're like, oh, can you repair the legs and refinish it and I'm going to get it reupholstered and. <laughs> Oh, do you know an upholsterer? Yeah, 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 I've got a guy. Uh, And then, you know, the cost of the chair, like the upholstery might be $600 and then the repair work might be $800. And all of a sudden they're like, oh, (laughs) this is now like a $2,000 chair. And the principle behind it is great. You know, get that chair going again. It could be really cool when you fix it up. But but, um, if someone's just driven by their sort of dollar interest in the item you know you kind of just have to go look maybe you should have a crack at doing it in your backyard or something but if you're willing to commit and invest we'll do it right and do it well and it'll be amazing but um yeah and this is another one of those conversations i guess you have (laughs) i've I've actually got a good story (laughs) i I can't believe i haven't shared this on the podcast before i say so um so you know scotty from the timber shack julian uh yeah scotty yeah Yeah. Yeah. so scotty passed the job on to me that I thought was a wind-up. So it was a guy wanting to make uh, some BDSM furniture okay, yep. for, his, for his dungeon. And I'm like, Scotty, come on, this is this is definitely a wind-up. He's like, no, nah, no, nah, the guy's legit. He's called me on the phone, so this guy emails me. And I'm like, do you know what? In some ways, it could be quite an interesting job. Like, you get to make something mm. you've never made before. And maybe it might be really cool and like bizarre piece of furniture. Yeah. So I make contact with the guy and I'm trying to work out what his budget is. And uh, he sends me through some photos. And yeah, they were mildly disturbing. But he said, you know, (laughs) oh, well, we could either make one from scratch or I could just buy a chair and you could cut a hole in the bottom of it. And I'm like, nah, dude, I think I think I might. You might want to just see that yourself. (laughs) Wow. Oh my god! So that, that's it's as bad as being asked to make a coffin for someone who's still alive. Yeah. That's, uh. I actually saw a really nice um, documentary <laughs> an, an English maker had done 
on making a coffin. His his grandmother had commissioned him to make her coffin. Right. And uh, she used it as a coffee table for like two or three years or something. I think she she was terminally ill at the time. And right. she wanted to use the piece of furniture and sort of acknowledge the fact that she was going to be buried in it. Wow. Like, That's funny. In some ways it's morbid, but in other ways it's kind of cool that it's not just making a beautiful coffin to then bury and rot in the ground. Like, it, you know, it had a bit of use. Yeah, that is, that's true. It always pisses me off. I hate coffins. <laughs> I, hate I reckon we'll have a... Uh, uh, we need to gilded. see more modern ones. Yeah. yeah, we do, but they just need to be simple. Like No, that's true. I, I think the, the cardboard type that yeah. might be, you know, be full of tree seeds or something like that where it'll just, you know... Like, what a self, fucking waste. Self-compost all or whatever. lacquer yeah. and... Yeah, like, no, it's crazy. It, oh, yeah. my God. Drives me mad. It's, especially yes. when you just end up burning it, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, at least with That's, BDSM <laughs> furniture, you know it's going to be used. That's right, yeah. 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 It's funny you say that. There's no on breaking in the legs <laughs> off the chairs and stuff. <laughs> there was a time years ago when uh, a friend of a friend, was her job was she worked as a mistress sort of thing. And, um, I think there's a, another name for it, but in that field. Like a dominatrix? Um, yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, real character, and and uh, when I used to make paddles a lot in the earlier days, uh, I remember her asking me, "Would you consider making some for my practice?" And it never eventuated. But I was like, serving oh, I would paddles have been being used it. as spanking paddles. Absolutely, because that's what I mean. My serving boards kind of look like that. They're a bit, you know. Um, but I figured you'd just probably drill a few extra holes in them just so they're aerodynamic and. Um, <laughs> You know, yeah, if if the order had been right, it may have happened, but it never did. Oh, so. um, for yeah. any of you listeners wondering, has Robin fallen asleep? His internet's died and he's going to be kicking yeah. himself. He's missing all this chat. Uh, uh, yeah. But yeah, it's hey, funny. Julian, it's, what were you, what, sorry, what were you going to say, I was say, just Brian? saying it's funny like how, how things like that just turn out. Like, cause, I don't know. It, like That's the sort of thing. Like, Say you were to just specialise in making mm. furniture for like high-end dungeon yeah. people who totally. want it, sure like, there's money there I'm, I'm sure there's huge money there just not yep. this guy yeah <laughs> I was going to say Julian what's uh, we've got a few minutes left what's the yeah. um, uh, future looking like what you know, what kind of workshop have you got now mm. and, and are you planning to upgrade are you comfy where you are mm. um, what, you, you, you've got, have you got big plans to expand <laughs> um, oh, it's always a, the, the big question um I I'm pretty happy where I am at the moment. Um, I've got a you know a handy sort of setup. I probably use my workshop is about 110 square meters, but I sort of bleed out a little bit. I'm in a quite a big factory, but I'm the only maker there, um, and the rest of the factory is, is like a roller bearings business. They they make. Um, uh, sort of architectural products that go into doors, sliding doors and things like that. And so um, I sort of, yeah, I guess 110 to 130 square metres, which is good. Um, but there's definitely a few things I'd like to upgrade. I could do, I've been looking for ages for a, a decent-sized jointer. I've got sort of a little 10-inch jointer, um, which has been great but I sort of need a longer bed and, and probably go a bit wider you know maybe up to 350 mil wide or something or maybe 400 nice. even would be cool um, I saw an awesome one on the Facebook marketplace yesterday 
beautiful uh, big Delta one. But um, anyway, so th- look, there's a few upgrades I'd like to do. Um, I'm a table saw guy as well, so I've always worked off a cabinet saw, table saw. Um, but I sometimes think about it'd be nice to have both, like have a sliding panel saw and the table saw. Um, and I'm sort of hoping in the near future to get, because I mostly work alone. Uh, I get help every now and again for deliveries and stuff, but I would love to have someone else in the workshop. Mm. Um, I've seen over the years um, how Brian's had, you know, different interns and things and, and just I can always see how that, and even when I used to share a workshop with my old workshop buddy, like it was just nice having someone there to bounce off and um so whether that's in the form of an apprentice or a skilled laborer of some sort would be great um you know i've I've been looking at that sort of happening in the second half of the year um and yeah i don't know I, i there's always the question you know melbourne factories and stuff unless you own them there's always going to be a question of what happens in a few years like do i have to move um but i've been where i am right now since 2015 which seems crazy now but um (laughs) yeah like uh, i think it's just a matter of making making the space as usable as possible especially if i'm going to bring someone in to work and and um that means every time i go out and to see clients and stuff that there's actually stuff happening in the workshop yeah yeah (laughs) what about joey have you got people working with you at the moment or um, I have one full-time employee, but he yeah. is currently away with the old COVID, so ah. that's completely stuffed up my last week and this week. So I've been trying to do uh, the work of two men, which is a ridiculous, stupid plan, because mm. um, I've got all sorts of ridiculous deadlines which are now thrown out the window. So um, I'm just, but yeah, uh, man, I'm I am fairly seriously thinking about a, a second full-time person. Mm. And I kind of don't want to do it just because I don't want to grow the business that much. Mm. Um, I've been there before with other businesses. It's not fun being that much of a manager. Yeah. But it's also not fun tearing your hair out because you, you just spent like three hours of the day driving for a supply run or something. Mm. Mm. Whereas um, you could either pass that on to somebody um, less qualified or hire someone who is as qualified as yourself. Yeah. And get yourself off the tools a little bit more and be more of it in the designing pricing area but it's a tough uh it's a tough separation to make which way you want to go Mm. and i'm actually leaning towards being more of a designer and pricing guy rather than being on the tools necessarily but um it's still something that i'm not sure that i can afford another pair of hands but getting a first pair of hands just makes such a massive difference yeah, I can imagine. Uh, I think for sure I, I share a similar view as in terms of I, I don't necessarily have an, a plan to go to, you know, 20, 30 staff in in some of the other places that I've, I've, I've experienced. Um, that hasn't ever been my goal, um, but I would like to find a way to create a, a bit more of a separation where I can focus on um, the customer relations side of things, a bit more of the design work stuff. Um, 
and and even put some more time into just um, extending my knowledge base. You know, there's always new stuff and technology and all this sort of stuff that you really just have to make the time for. And, Mm. you know, potentially there's some ways to to do that. So, um, yeah, just see how we go. All right. Well, seeing as Robin's not here... Yeah, you're going to do the outro. That's that's a as good a place as any to wrap this thing up. Thanks for being on that podcast, Julian. Can you tell people where they can find you? Uh, sure. No, thank you for having me. It's it's been um, I've really enjoyed the conversation. Um, thanks for listening as well. Uh, you can find me at glencross.com.au um, and uh, Glencross Furniture on Instagram. Um, there's a profile at handcrafted.com as well. Um, lots of other makers there too if you're looking for some different types of custom work. And um, even if you want to dig deep, I might even throw a podcast in there. Uh, <laughs> this one's been oh, that's left right. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, <laughs> I forgot this. No, that's all right. Um, a shout out to, to my mate Jamie Neville Young as well. Um, we, we started doing a podcast last year called What Do You See? And it was sort of an informal just chat about design and furniture cool. and you know, what do you see when you see a piece of furniture and, and what does that mean? And, um, yeah, we, we actually really have to get back to it and try and release some more. But, um, yeah. Anyway, that, was a, so. that was a lockdown project, wasn't it? <laughs> it was a bit, yeah. yeah. And we actually we recorded quite a few episodes, so there's still a bunch in the vault, but we sort of got busy between, you know, yeah. the end of last year and lockdowns and, and haven't edited it and everything. So, yeah, we'll okay. see how we go. Look forward <laughs> to hearing the rest of those. Sorry? Look forward to hearing the rest of those. Oh, yeah, thanks, mate. Well, I better get on to it. (laughs) (laughs) I've just put my foot in it. All right, have a good night, and uh, catch everybody else on another one. Cheers, Cheers, fellas. Bye. Bye.